Shabbat shalom. Oh, join me in prayer. <clears throat> Blessed are you, Yahweh Elohim, King of the universe. Father, we thank you for this day of rest that you have given us. We thank you for the Shabbat. Uh, may we just take this time to commune with you and set aside time in our life um, to focus on you and what you have to teach us and um, what we can learn from you. We just pray that um, you would be with us as we enjoy fellowship today. And um, we also pray for anyone who was affected by the storms last night, especially throughout Kansas and elsewhere in the uh, Midwest here. Father, we praise and exalt you. In Yahshua's name we pray. Amen. How then shall we live? As followers of Messiah, I believe this is a crucial question that we should be asking ourselves every day. Once we were convicted by the truth and were immersed into Yahshua's name, we became his disciples. So what is a disciple? A quick internet search will yield the results. A follower or student of a teacher, leader, or philosopher. I know some Bible translations will just use taught ones. So, in Matthew 10, 24, we find these words from the Master himself. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. So we, as his disciples, are to be like him. We are to follow in Yahshua's examples. The Greek word for disciple here is Matthias, or Matheus, Matheus, it's from Greek 3129, my Greek isn't as good as my Hebrew, not that I'm great at that either, but it, it really just means a learner or a pupil, disciple, disciple. and um, Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the word as one who follows one's teachings, so as Yahweh, or as Yahshua's followers, we should be following his example by studying and obeying his teachings. Now we know for a fact that Yahshua came to establish the Torah and the prophets. Matthew 5.17 tells us so. There are many good teachings on that already. And I know most of you hearing my voice today have already been convicting of, convicted of that. And you're working on implementing these things in your lives. But how should we be living our daily lives day to day? I think one thing, one uh, scripture we can look at is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, and it reads, and to, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This scripture and others like it are what I want to focus on today. I want to dive into the words of the master to gain better insight into how we shall then live. So the title of this message is actually a spin on the title of a book and a 10-part miniseries by Francis A. Schaeffer titled, How Should We Then Live? Um, so that's a book. If you, you Actually, if you Google it um, or you know, go onto YouTube, the 10-part miniseries is on YouTube. It's, I don't know, maybe a half hour, 45 minutes each part, probably 45 minutes. It was probably from like a, an hour long show, and it was originally from back in like the 70s. So I'm going to quote this book a bit. Um, it's by Dr. Francis Schaeffer, and um, very intelligent man. He's a Christian, a Protestant, um, but a lot of insight into um, what we're going to look into about kind of how the church evolved over the years and really what it has caused in Western society and what we need to do. So the book's actually subtitled, The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. In his book, Francis Schaeffer tra traces Western society from the time of the early church to our modern times, or at least to the time that he wrote the book in the 1970s. And the author's note in the, in the preface of the book, he writes, In no way does this book make a pretense of being a complete chronological history of Western culture. It is questionable if such a book could even be written. This book is, however, an analysis of the key moments in history which have formed our present culture and the thinking of the people who brought those moments to pass. 
This study is made in the hope that light may be shed upon the major characteristics of our age and that solutions may be found to the myriad of problems which face us as we look toward the end of the 20th century. He points out the difference between the worldview of the Roman society and the early believers in Messiah. Romans, they base their worldview on their mighty ones, who in reality are human personifications and are not actually mighty ones. Therefore, they are limited and finite, and their, their worldview in that is limited and finite, where the early assembly believed in the one true Elohim, that is an infinite personal Elohim, and that they had the hope of the resurrection through Messiah Yeshua. The difference being ultimately is who are we really accountable to and how do we relate to others because of what we believe. If it's just man and man's thoughts, then we really aren't accountable to anyone. We can do whatever we want, but if it is Elohim, then we are accountable to him and his Torah. Francis Schaeffer acknowledges that early Christianity was much different than what we see in the churches and denominations of today. Now, due to his Christian theology, he never really takes it all the way back to the Torah. However, he emphasizes that early believers focused on community and fellowship. They met in homes with other believers and focused on the truth of the scriptures. His main point was how that changed over the centuries as the church was centralized and polluted with Roman thought and philosophy, and how over the course of time it moved further and further away from where it started into something unrecognizable from the faith of the the first disciples. Most importantly, Schaefer puts the blame of the problems of our modern society squarely on the church, not that they necessarily created the problems, but because they allowed them by moving further and further away from the truth. This happened throughout the idea of humanistic thinking, which is a human-centered thought, not the acknowledgement of of a Yahweh-centered world. Excuse me for a second. So, um, page 174 of his book, I'm going to quote this part. It says, back in the Middle Ages... We saw that a certain humanistic elements entered the church. The essence of the Reformation was the removal of these things from from the church's teaching. On the other hand, humanistic thinking developed in the Renaissance and again went further than the Enlightenment. A more total form of humanism entered the Protestant church and has gradually spread to all the branches of the church, including the Roman Catholic. The concept of man being from himself now began to be expressed in the theology and theological language. We know that a few believers continued what the Reformation started and moved closer to the truth over the centuries. Those like Conrad Beisel and other Seventh-day Baptists that eventually gave rise to the modern-day sacred name and Hebrew roots movements. However, sadly, most of the church did not. In his book, Schaefer calls out modern-day theologians who accept modern science as being contrary to the scriptures and create thought and theology to deal with what they perceive as contradictions. He writes, The new liberal theology, because it says that the Bible does not touch the cosmos or history, has no real basis for applying the Bible's values in a historical situation in either morals or law. Everything religious is in the area of non-reason, and since reason has no place there, there is no room for discussion. There are only arbitrary, arbitrary pronouncements. This new liberal theology has given birth to a great falling away, along with a philosophy of anything goes and all things are good. So now we see things like lesbian pastors of a Lutheran church and all kinds of other abominable practices within the church, things that are truly anti-Messiah. When the laws of Scripture no longer apply, it only leads to lawlessness and abomination. And this all gives rise to humanism. But man still needs to have laws, otherwise it's just chaos. So if we don't have Yahweh's Torah, 
as rule of law, then man will make his own law and rule. So in other words, when humanism rules, Yahweh's laws don't exist in their mind. And people will seek to make laws so that those in power stay in power and continue to dominate the people. This gives rise to dictators and the social and political elite alike. People in this country are just pretty much bent on continuing to reelect these same, you know, these same crooks and liars, essentially, that are ruling our country, even though we can, we can do something about it, but for whatever reason, we seem to continue to reelect the same candidates. And this, you know, when we're electing, you know, these elite, all we're doing is um, continuing to ensure slavery, physical slavery and spiritual slavery. But you also get the form of slavery which most of us are under, and that is the slavery of debt. Proverbs 22.7 says that the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Ultimately, this is Satan's plan. Even though most of the political and social elite may not realize it, it is, but it's Satan who is in charge of their lives, not themselves. They are just his minions carrying out his acts of oppression on the people. Just remember when Satan took Yahshua to the very high mountain and offered him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Do you not think that Satan offers these things um, to those who serve him as well? Of course he won't give it to them. He'll just give them enough to keep them coming back to him. But we know that Yahshua rejected them, and so should we. Just think about this as an example of how the politicians keep to continue, or continue to keep people enslaved. If the borrower is slave to the lender, then the American taxpayers are slaves to the Federal Reserve and their investors, all the big banks, big corporations, the elite of the elite, and foreign countries like China that all hold our debt. So how do they do this? How do they keep us enslaved? Through fear. First, they make us afraid of foreign threats like terrorism and get us into endless wars that cost us trillions of dollars as taxpayers, all of which has to be borrowed, saddling future generations with that debt, which to me is it's theft from our children. Meanwhile, the military-industrial complex rakes in billions of dollars. Then the elite make us afraid of a financial downturn that they created through their own fiscal policy to drum up support for more government bailouts to save these big banks that are too big to fail, bringing on more debt. More, but more profit for the big banks. And just think how over the last two years they made us afraid of a virus that in most cases is no worse than a common flu or cold so that they can implement medical tyranny upon us, authorizing big pharma to develop endless vaccines while putting taxpayers on the hook for them with all the liability being shifted from the manufacturers to the taxpayers and also to the to the recipients of these jabs. You know, these, people, these pharmaceutical companies have no liability whatsoever for this. I mean, and I just saw the other day, they're all concerned because people in Missouri aren't getting enough jabs, so they got all kinds of extra vaccines sitting around, and, and uh, they're trying to figure out how they can just, I guess, use them for kids, you know. So, But meanwhile, over the past two years, Big Pharma has raked in billions of dollars, record profits like they've never had before. And uh, But are you better off than you were two years ago? They are. I doubt that that most of us are. The pandemic, which includes endless money printing, has brought on inflation rates unseen in my lifetime, and they will most likely end up passing those seen by previous generations. This out-of-control spending and reckless debt is just theft, theft from our children. It's sin. It's an endless cycle of war, financial crisis, famine, sickness, and disease. Sounds like the four horsemen of Revelation 6 riding over the earth. So back to Francis Schaeffer. He actually warned of this ruling elite back in the 1970s. Um, in chapter 12 of his book, in what was to me a very extremely prophetic chapter uh, entitled Manipulation and the New Elite, we read, As we consider the coming of an elite, an authoritarian state, to fill the vacuum left by the, loss of, by the loss of Christian principles, we must not think naively of the, modern, of the models of Stalin or Hitler. We must think, rather, of, manipulate, of a manipul, 
manipulative authoritarian government. Modern governments have forms of manipulation at their disposal, which the world has never known before. Now remember, this book was written back in the 70s, you know, so he's thinking of television and radio. But that was before, you know, internet was in everybody's house. You know, we all had personal, now we all have personal devices. And this was before Facebook and Gulag or Google. The forms of manipulation that the elite have now is incredible and incredibly scary. And it's also incredibly effective. Can you imagine if Hitler had, had you know, fake book and, a, and the vaccine? You know, he probably would have succeeded with his insidious scheme. So I guess, you know, it's no longer fake book or Facebook. Now it's meta, or at least that's the parent company, because that doesn't sound any more ominous. This manipulation was ever so evident over the past two years with the pandemic that we've watched and roll before our eyes. They're clearly setting the stage for the mark of the beast, and I think the masses will easily accept it. Because if they don't, they won't be able to buy or sell because their technology won't work. So what am I really saying? What does this rant kind of have to do with anything? Well, ultimately, it means everything, and it affects the way that we currently live. Stuff's going to start to hit the fan. If we're just standing around, we're going to end up covered in the stuff. So the social and political elites I mentioned above are all part of the Babylon system that we're supposed to be coming out of. Revelation 18.4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you partake in her sins. So how do we do that? Well, Yahshua taught us how. We just need to be his disciples and follow his teachings. Let's turn our scriptures to Matthew 6. Verse 19, Yahshua says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here we find a warning from our master about not laying up for, our, laying up for ourselves wealth and material goods here on earth, because ultimately... They will either decompose or will be stolen by others. But when we lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven by doing righteous acts, our treasures are safe. When we do things like giving to charity, when we tithe, when we help others out of compassion or you know, with our prayers, and when we fast, we're laying, we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And once they're there up in that storehouse, they can't be taken away from us. But we have to be mindful that we're not doing these things to be seen and recognized by others here and now. Because if that's where they'll stop, you know, we'll get our reward. That'll be our reward if we're just doing these things to be seen by them. And they'll never make it up to the storehouse. Yahshua tells us in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have... No reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now let's keep stay in chapter, <clears throat> chapter 6 and skip down to 24. Verse 24. Joshua tells us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve Elohim in money. What Joshua is saying here is not that we shouldn't work at all, or that we shouldn't have some type of gainful employment, but that we can't make our job or the money that we are working for be the motivating factor of our lives. When we put our jobs before Yahweh and his commandments, then we are just making it our master and not him. You know, we shouldn't be saying to ourselves, well, if I might have to work a few Sabbaths here or high day here, and uh, it's just now, just until I have enough money for such and such, or... I know the principles of this job go against Yahweh's word, but I just need to do it until I have enough money saved up. Let me tell you something. If that's the mentality you have, it's never going to be enough. Something else is always going to come up. Something's going to cost more than what you thought. You're never going to get to that goal amount. And if you do reach that goal amount, you're not going to feel as safe and comfortable with that amount as what you thought you were. So you're just going to kind of raise the bar, just like the U.S. government continues to raise the debt ceiling. 
We as believers have to find occupations that allow us to live within the parameters of Yahweh's word and that where we don't have to compromise our values or our time, you know, the Sabbaths and feast days with Yahweh to be satisfied with what it provides. You know, we need to be satisfied with what Yahweh provides for us and just learn to live within our means. Uh, carrying on in uh, verse 25, sorry, the text got so small, but Yahshua says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if Yahweh so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of Yahweh and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love this passage, and it has been a go-to for me and my family for, for years now. And can worrying, like he says, can worrying actually add anything to our lives? Actually, it's the opposite. It takes away from your life. It degrades the quality of our life by making us anxious or depressed instead of being joyful in what we do have. You know, it, it keeps us worrying about something in the future or something in the past instead of just, you know, being grateful and living in the moment. You know, we got to learn to live a conscious life in the moment. And it's not even to mention the physical harm that anxiety and depression can do to your body and health in the long run. Worrying ultimately just takes away from our lives. And we especially shouldn't be wrapped up and concerned about our clothes and fashion. Because what does the master teach us? In verse 32, he said that these are the things that the Gentiles seek after. So we shouldn't be concerned and seek after them. We just need to trust in Yahweh and put our effort Put in our effort, and he will provide for us what we need. And we also shouldn't be anxious because we don't get all the things that we want, or our bank account isn't as full as we like it to be, because Matthew 5, 3, and actually this is from the New Living Translation, which I don't quote from ever, but I like the way that it actually translated this verse. It says, Elohim blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And in 5.6, switching back to the ESV, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's the big thing to keep in mind. The mar- if the mark of the beast is coming, and when it's here, those dollars in your account aren't going to do much, for it, much good for you if, unless you take the mark. We as believers really need to start thinking or rethinking the way we think about economy. We need to reshape the way we live our lives, and we need to build our own economy and community. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. I want to show you, we're going to look at a few articles here and talk about what the world's planning. So <clears throat> the world governments, as we know, as we know, are about to change. The governments are ruled by the... On March 29th and 30th, 2022, the elites of this world from the World Economic Forum held what they called the World Government Summit in Dubai. During this event, tens of thousands of leaders got together to discuss their plans and intentions for the future, to mold the narrative, if you government summit, um, Right here, it's a, so www.worldgovernmentsummit.org on their about page. This is what it says. It says the World Government Summit Organization is a global, neutral, 
nonprofit organization dedicated to shaping the future of governments. The summit, in its various activities, explores the agenda of the next generation of governments, focusing on harnessing innovation and technology to, dis- to solve universal challenges facing humanity. So, I mean, in my opinion, they're probably about as nonprofit as a farmer who buys hay for his livestock. It may cost them something to do all this and put it on, but just like the farmer, all they're doing is putting the hay away for a later day um, because ultimately they just need to feed their cows. This is the platform, the the World Economic Forum and this, this global summit is the platform that the elite use to ensure the policies of tomorrow's governments work for them and allow them to prosper. This is a list. This is only a small list. It's basically all these forums, like these networking events that they go to. I mean, being in the business world, I've gone to network events before, and, and um, you know, there's all these little breakaway sessions. But this is a list of some of the topics that were discussed at the summit. So it's infrastructure of tomorrow, how governments can build safe, smart, and digital havens. Are we ready for the digital leap? The end of privacy. Ethical questions for the digital error. Paving the way for the metaverse. The metaverse, a technology that creates opportunity. And I can tell you, I love, the thing that you love about it is the people that are holding these ones are pe- people from Meta. You know, the, you know the, the people that work for Meta. You know, they're pushing their, their agenda. Epic for digital commons across the metaverse. Reengineering immunity with next generation technologies. 6G from connecting things to connecting intelligence. On the verge of a global food crisis, can we contain it? And guiding societies and a world full of uncertainty. So for those of you who may not know, Meta is a new name for the the parent company of Facebook. And the metaverse is essentially a virtual reality where people, quote, work and play. But what it really is, is a platform of escapism for the user to a virtual reality that will just steal your time and your money and allow you to be enslaved and manipulated by their propaganda. The ads and promos for this, to me, are creepy and really should be concerning to us all. It reminds me more of The Matrix. I don't know how many of you have watched the movie The Matrix, but it honestly reminds me more of The Matrix where we're all going to be just connected to this big grid, you know, is what they're looking for, um, than just some great new, new technology for mankind. I'm urging all of you who may be tempted by the metaverse in the future, please take the red pill, not the blue one. That's a Matrix joke if anybody watched it. I can tell only a few people did, but it's all right. Just think of this, of the censorship and control that exists on Facebook right now, and just imagine what they're going to do with this technology. I can tell you that Yahweh did not create us to waste our time in some virtual reality, pursuing things that are not real. He created us to work the land and live by the sweat of our own brow. This is why video, this is why video games are so toxic and, and I believe, a drain on our society. So back to this summit, among the, the list of speakers included globalist billionaire, uh, do I have a slide on this? No, okay. So this is just a quote from an article. Among the list of speakers included globalist billionaire and World Economic Forum founder Klaus Schwab, who warned that incoming changes to the international system will result in global energy, food, and supply chain systems being, quote, deeply affected. Um, This comes from uh, valiantnews.com. I might actually end up... Am I going to have a... No, it doesn't look like it will. Sorry. But anyhow, this comes from valiantnews.com backslash 2022 backslash 03 world-government-summit.digitalcurrency-will underpin the new world order. So this, I'm going to be actually be reading a few quotes from this article here. So one of the speakers during the event was Dr. Pippa Malgram, a leading U.S. Econ- or economist who served as special advisor to President George W. Bush. So this is, um, I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote from this article, but I think it's kind of pertinent. During the event, Malgren whose father served as a senior aide to U.S. Presidents John F. Kennedy, 
Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford explain the vision that the international elite have for the future of the global economic system. This is quoting quoting this Dr. Uh, Pippa Malgram now. What underpins a world order is always the financial system. I was very privileged. My father was an advisor to Nixon when he came off the gold standard in 71. And so, I was brought up with a kind of inside view on how very important the financial structure is to absolutely everything else, she said. And she continues. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain, Malgram continued. According to Malgram, this new digital currency will allow governments to track any and all financial activity occurring in the economic system warning that it could dramatically tilt the balance of power to states over their citizens. She further noted that China introduced a digital currency in their country and that European countries are following suit. This is quoting uh, Dr. Malgram again. It means digital. It means having an almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which we... which will give us far greater clarity over what is going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between state and citizens, said Malgren. In my opinion, we're going to need a digital constitution of human rights if we're going to have digital money. This is, again, quoting her. But also, this new money will be sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private. But what I see our superpowers introduce... What I see our superpowers introducing digital currency, the Chinese were the first and the U.S. is on the brink, I think of moving the same direction the Europeans have committed to, to that as well, she added. And the question is, will that new system of digital money and digital accounting accommodate the competing needs of the citizens of all these locations so that every human being has a chance to have a better life? Because that's the only measure of whether a world order really of whether a world order really serves, Malgren said. That's kind of like a, a, an alarming, you know, statement to me. So they're pretty much going to say, well, we're going to set up this world order and we're going to do it, and you know, we'll just have to hope it works. But in the meantime, what you know, what are we going to say? Oops, it didn't work. You know, sorry, we all got you, gave you the mark of the beast. Now, sorry about that. It's actually obvious to me that they are setting the table for a new currency that could easily become the mark of the beast. Besides this event, this recent event, there's another article that was put out by the World Economic Forum that lays out their intentions for the world and those and how they see those who will not participate in their system. This is actually goes back uh, to um, 2016. It's a Forbes article that is categorized in Forbes under leadership strategy. And it's an article from the World Economic Forum penned by Ida Aukin. And it's titled, Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. In this article, they describe the world they envision, or at least how they want us to envision it, for us to opt in. Here are a few quotes from the article. I actually only have the last one, but here's a few other quotes before we get to that one. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city? I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. It might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense for us in this city. Everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. First, communication became digital, digitalized and free to everyone. Then, when clean energy became free, things started to move quickly. In our city, we don't pay any rent because someone else is using our free space whenever we don't need it. My living room is used for business meetings when I'm not there. 
When AI and robots took over so much of our work, we suddenly had time to eat well, sleep well, and spend time with other people. Now, here, this is a quote I have up. Here's the most alarming quote to me. My biggest concern is all the people who do not live in our city, those we lost on the way, those who decided that it became too much, all this technology, those who felt obsolete and useless when robots and AI took over big parts of our jobs, those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They live different kinds of lives outside the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities. Others just stayed in the empty and abandoned houses in small 19th century villages. So they see us as lost to their utopian system. They want to try to make it sound like something great out of Acts 2, but who are they really worshiping? Who will they serve? I can tell you that I don't think they're going to be worshiping Yahweh there. Most likely, they will either try to get us to worship ourselves, them, or the technology that rules the system. So knowing all this, what are we to do? Jeremiah 51, 6 says, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Do not, cut off, do not be cut off or be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of Yahweh's vengeance, the repayment he is re- rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in Yahweh's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. It's time to come out so that we do not partake in her sins and experience her plagues. You've all read Revelation, at least I hope most of you have. What is coming upon this earth is unlike anything that we've ever seen. Numbers 16.21 says, Separate yourselves from this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. We need to be separating ourselves from this system so that we don't go down with it. So what should we, or can you even do? Well, this all really depends on where you are and what your capabilities are. First and foremost, we need to pray. Yahweh can deliver us from any situation, but we need to come to him and we need to ask him to make a way. We can't just have an attitude of sitting around and expecting him to rescue us from Babylon if we continue to willingly participate in it. It's a clear command that we are to come out. So when you start looking around and realize that you're sitting in Babylon, pray, and he will show you the way if you're willing to listen. Next, you need to get some basic survival foods and supplies stocked up for yourself in case you have to flee and rough it for a while or until we get to someplace safe. The next thing you need to do is work on getting out of debt. Talking credit card debt, car loans, student loans, and yes, even mortgages. I realize it's not a a reality for the majority of us, myself included. But it has to be our goal. We've got to be working towards it. We at least need to get these to a manageable point where it's not a large part of our income. Because think about this. How are you going to pay that debt? at the point that they switch to a digital currency that becomes the mark of a beat, the mark of the beast. If you can't pay it, they're going to take away what you had, and they will leverage that debt against you. Consider the types of debt that you hold. You know, basically you have personal debt or property debt. Personal debts, things like credit cards, personal loans, student loans, medical bills. You're personally responsible and liable to pay that debt. There's nothing that they can repossess to settle those debts. And we'll actually talk about an example of personal debt in a minute that Yahshua gives us. But property debt is things like a mortgage, home loans, car loans, equipment loans. Basically, if you fail to pay those loans or just take what you borrowed, whatever you borrowed the money for, as long as you're not underwater on the loan, it's basically settled. Your credit might be ruined, but in a mark of the beast scenario, it really difference does it make at that point anyhow so Yahshua he gives us some advice concerning debt first off when he taught us the master's prayer he told us he said and forgive us our debts taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we may also forgive um, as we also have forgiven our debtors I realize he's not just talking about physical debt but really spiritual trespass against our brothers but keep in mind that we do have to forgive 
you know, people who owe us things as well. We have to be willing to, to forgive. In the parable of the wicked servant in uh, Matthew 18, we read, uh, starting in verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I think I looked it up. It's something. It's like 15 years. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment be made. So his servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seized him. And he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. I mean, it's still a significant amount, a couple thousand, like a couple months worth of work or something. A denarii is a, a day's worth of work. So a hundred, you know, so about three, three and a half months worth of wages, a few thousand dollars. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused, the wicked refu- servant refused, and, went and put him into prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master what had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Ultimately, this parable is about forgiving your brother when they sin against you. But I think it outlines the dangers of debt and also the greed that can enter our hearts when others are indebted to us. Now, this is just my kind of warning, my uh, disclaimer. I am not a financial advisor. So, and, and actually, I might give you poor financial advice, especially considering the world standards. You know, maybe listen to Dave Ramsey or something like that, you know, if you're really looking for good financial advice, which, you know, he's, he's, he's basically says the same thing. Get out of debt, you know, work your debt down. And um, I'm also not saying that, like, it's sin to have debt or that you shouldn't have any debt, period. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just making a warning not to saddle yourself with loads of debt, um, you know, that you can't get out of or that it's, you know, it's going to become a burden that eventually is going to break you down. You know, you're not going to be continued to, you're not going to be able to pay it. And I'm especially, you know, kind of throwing this out there for the young kids. You know, you're, you're getting, you're young, you start to get a job, you know, you maybe end up with a credit card. Those credit cards could take you down quick. So, <clears throat> because, the, but the reality of debt is, the, ra- the reality is that unless you're extremely well off, you're not going to be able to buy a home. You're not going to be able to buy a piece of property. Um, outright without some type of debt and if you're trying to get out of the city you're going to end up having to take on some debt to get a piece of ground you know or or something out in the country you know so you're gonna have to take on some debt to do it but make sure it's manageable make sure you can easily afford it especially if you lose your job or have to try to figure out other ways to make money but also try to make a plan that you can pay it off as soon as possible um you know 2030 seems to be a benchmark you know, for the, in their mind, so maybe it should be something on ours. And I realize that that's not a reality, but just, um, you know, like I said, try to be manageable. And also remember that a mortgage, it really isn't any worse than renting, you know, from someone else. At least with the mortgage, you're paying the principal back to yourself. And hopefully, you know, you get it paid off at the end of the day. You'll have something to show for it. You know, in the kingdom, we'll, we'll, have, we'll be able to look forward to debt-free living when we receive our inheritance from our father. But for those that are willing and able now to try to live a debt-free life, and especially those that, are, that do it, you know, there's people out there, they do it by exploring all their alternative methods of living. They sacrifice most of uh, modern-day conveniences to do so. They're obeying a harder teaching, and that ultimately they'll be blessed in it. But all that being said, what is the real solution? How can you or should you be living as the body of Messiah? Well, I guess we could always just start a commune with the framework we see in the book of Acts, but I realize that's not going to work for, for a lot of us, for most of us. Um, I know people that do it, and it, it works for them, and I'm not going to condemn anybody for, for doing that, but um, it's not for all of us. 
Um, plus, I don't really see a direct command to live in a commune. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a whole other thing with the book of Acts, you know, what they're going on, what was going on there. Ultimately, I believe that the disciples lived like that out of necessity because of the persecution and because of the growing assembly. And, you know, and very well, it might become our, our reality for us in the future, depending on how quickly this um, kind of new world system takes over and the mark of the beast comes, comes around. But um, it's something that we should, you know, at least in our mind, be ready for. But, it, you know, really, is there another option? Is there another biblical framework? So in Ephesians 2.12, Paul, speaking of, of really of the spiritual body of Messiah, he makes he just has a, a point here, and I got it underlined. He says, remember that you at one time were separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And that's kind of the key point, this commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenant of promise, covenants of promise, having no hope and without Yahweh in the world. Again, I know Paul is speaking of the spiritual body of Messiah, and he's talking about bringing the Gentiles into the covenant. What I find interesting is this reference to the commonwealth of Israel. So what is a commonwealth? Well, according to Oxford Dictionary, a commonwealth is it's an independent country or community, especially a democratic republic. It's also a community or organization of shared interests in a non-political field. Basically, a commonwealth is a community in which like-minded people work together for the good of the community. In our case, this would be for the kingdom of Yahweh. The way I envision this really isn't as a commune, but a community, where people still maintain their own personal dwellings and property, but share common areas such as pastures, fields, and gardens. This is kind of Joshua's idyllic view, right? So I'm just going to kind of throw it out there. I realize it's, it's not reality, but it's an idyllic view that I, that I think we can, as people, start to think about. And I think that ultimately this is the way that um, we're going to see life in the kingdom, it's almost kind of like the way the Levitical towns in ancient Israel were set up. In uh, Numbers 35, starting in verse 2, we kind of get a little picture of it. It says, Command the people of Israel to give the Levites some of the inheritance of their possessions as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture lands around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for their beasts. The pasture lands of the cities, which you shall give to the Levites, shall reach out from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. Now, Jenny and I kind of noticed a little bit of a, of a, like a, I don't know. The, the, it says a thousand cubits here, but then it measure, everything measures. It says, and you shall measure outside the city on the east side 2,000 cubits, and on the south side 2,000 cubits, on the west side 2,000 cubits, and on the north side 2,000 cubits. The city being in the middle, this shall belong to them as pasture lands for their cities. Again, it's not the measurements I'm concerned about. I'm just talking about this picture. You know, so basically, I kind of foresee like little personal plots, you know, an acre or two acres per person, you know, where we have our own house, your little kitchen garden, maybe, you know, um, along with our own little vine and fig tree. You know, Micah 4.4 4 says, but... They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of Yahweh Saravot, or of hosts, has spoken. So again, it's, you know, you know we're going to have property. You know, there's, there's really no, nothing saying that we can't have any property. Um, but, you know, the large fields and pasture lands can be shared by everyone in the community. And the work is shared by everyone. And this is actually... Um, Within England and Wales, like a lot of, you know, older countries, that's the way they had, you know, the pasture lands were communal, like they were shared by people. And even in Germany, it's kind of like that today when we were over there, you'd see this kind of set up. <clears throat> but there can also be more communal or townhouse living for those that aren't interested in taking care of a bigger property, you know. So you, know, you kind of have like a little, little cluster housing and um, but it's community. Just think of how great it would be if we're all living, you know, together, achad, as one, brother helping brother. How much further we can get and, and our economy can be brought, you know, shared together. And we don't necessarily have to go out. We can keep it, keep it inside the body. This may end up being what we're going to have to do in, in a future time. Well, I realize it's not reality today. 
like I said, it, it could become the necessity of tomorrow. And I really feel that we need to start thinking about this and need to start talking more about community. And as I said, it may not be as I described above, but we at least need to have a network of believers that we can lean on when times get hard. You know, we need to, to have people that can, you know, basically produce food, that can, you know, produce and mend clothing, and to produce the necessities we need for life. I can tell you that this has been heavy on me for a long time, and really the, the way of life has been heavy on me for the past few months. And I've really, really struggled and considered how I should be living as a follower of Messiah and what I should be doing. Uh, I was at the point of just, you know, should I just sell everything and just follow Yahshua and not own really anything and just try to, you know, float around in a camper? I, I really, ultimately, I'd, be, I'd love to just have a tent, you know, have my, like, yurt or teepee or tent and just kind of have my herds and just drive them around like, you know, like uh, Abraham did. But I realize that's no longer the a reality of today. But my thing was, is I was trying, I want to try to find a more sustainable way to live too, you know, more off, off the, off the grid, or at least out of the system. And I tried looking into different live on sustainable agriculture jobs that are out there, you know, having to look in the world because I wasn't able to find anything within the body. But what I found is that, you know, everything in the world's corrupt, everything. You know, either A, they're motivated by high-dollar profits, basically just catering to the well-to-dos of the world, and you're going to be exposed to, you know, to, to all the sin that goes along with that. Or they're corrupted by liberal theology of homosexuality and transgenderism. You found that out firsthand. And, you know, I also know that homesteading on your own isn't easy. It's not, it's, it's not easy. We need each other. But we need to be able to hone our skills now. We need to hone our skills so that we can prepare for what is to come. I have no idea of the timing. But I have a feeling in my heart that time is short. But I do believe that there's still time to prepare. Now is a time of soul searching and pre- preparation. We need to put aside trivial matters and work on building the body of Messiah. There's no hope in this world. It is only in Yahweh, through being a disciple of Yeshua, that there is hope. So I just ask and kind of implore everyone to continue to follow the straight path so that you can enter through the narrow gate. May Yahweh bless you.